Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we ask a few of our writers to read their piece from the magazine aloud. I'm Max Jeffrey. On today's episode, Lionel Shriver says Donald Trump can't get a fair trial. Angus Colwell talks to the Gen Zers who would fight for Britain. Matthew Paris argues in favour of assisted dying. Toby Young tells the story of the time where he was nearly killed on his gap year. And Harry Mount looks at the grim life of a Roman legionary. First up, Lionel Shriver. I'm an unlikely defender of Donald Trump. Politically, he's not my boy. Most of the former president's hyperbolic rants make me cringe. Yet last week, I had to agree with DT that a jury's award of 83.3 million of his assets to E. Jean Carroll for defamation was absolutely ridiculous. Keeping track of all the cases against Trump can be challenging, so let's review. In 2019, while Trump was still president, Carroll went public with the accusation that back in 1995, or was it 1996, he raped her in the lingerie dressing room of Manhattan's upscale clothing retailer, Bergdorf Goodman. Trump denied that the encounter had ever occurred and claimed he'd never met the woman. She was totally lying. And besides, she was not his type. Previously an advice columnist for Elle magazine, Carol sued Trump for defamation, the case soon getting bogged down by appeals. In 2022, Carol sued Trump in civil court when she continued to publicly allude to the rape, Trump filed a defamation countersuit. The same hardly neutral judge threw the countersuit out on the grounds that to ordinary people, rape and sexual abuse were the same thing. I beg to differ. Trump kept denying his culpability in rallies and on social media, calling Carol a whack job. Carol resumed her defamation suit and won. Her lawyers were asking for minimum damages of $10 million. After conferring for under three hours, the jury awarded her $83.3 million instead. That's serious money even to Trump, who may scramble to rustle up the cash to put in escrow as he appeals the verdict. Carol's lawyers deployed videos of Trump boasting about his wealth against him, suggesting that only a whopping award would make him feel the pinch. But it's worth asking whether the jury would have levied such a staggering financial penalty had the same case been brought against any defendant other than Donald Trump. Who is sui generis? Unless he or she has been in a coma since 2015, Is there an American who's not already formed an opinion of the man? Can Trump ever confront jurors and judges who are not predisposed to convict or exonerate before a word is said? All these E. Jean Carroll trials have been held in New York. I'm registered to vote in New York. The state is so drastically democratic that in November I will enjoy the rare luxury option of voting for a third-party candidate as an ineffectual protest against a Biden-Trump rematch, with no fear of increasing the likelihood that New York's electoral votes go to Trump. 
New York judgeships and juries must be chaka with Democrats. The scale of this award reeks of politics. The rape case would also have been contaminated by the minor matter that a year and some beforehand, the defendant was a highly divisive president of the United States. The charge could not be pursued in criminal court with strict beyond reasonable doubt standards because the alleged incident occurred a quarter century earlier and the statute of limitations had run out. Requiring only a better than 50% chance of guilt, even Carroll's civil case was only possible thanks to a new law in New York allowing adult sexual assault victims a one-time chance to litigate for damages despite the statute of limitations having run out. A law passed in the wake of Me Too and a good demonstration of why legislation that plays to the social hysteria of the moment is usually a bad idea. Statutes of limitation exist for a reason. Decades later, recollections warp and fade, while material evidence is often non-existent. Aside from producing two witnesses to whom she confided after the assault, Carol presented no corroborating evidence. All she had was her story. As for that story, it's never gelled for me, though I'm nervous about questioning the particulars lest I end up in court. In her 2019 account in New York Magazine, Carol claims to have met Trump at the door of the department store. He stopped and said, Hey, you're that advice lady. Really? Trump reads advice columns in women's magazines so loyally that he recognizes her face? Carol couldn't pinpoint the year this happened and in court had to rejig her timeline when it was pointed out that the designer coat dress she described herself as wearing hadn't yet been manufactured. Yet in her text, her memory of their flirtatious banter is surely too vivid, too long, too detailed, and entirely couched in direct quotes. She can't recall to what degree she was physically violated, and her description of the attack in the dressing room is anatomically dubious. The sole proof Carol's lawyers produced that Trump had indeed met Carol before is one photo from a crowded 1987 party. Having met many thousands of people over his lifetime, he wouldn't necessarily recall a brief encounter with one blonde woman. I forget most of the new people I've met at a party by the time I get home. In January's defamation trial, Trump was forbidden from disputing or attempting to undermine the original sexual abuse conviction. While outside the courtroom, he may continue to deny that the assault happened, he may not disparage Carol's character. As the New York Times summarized, defending yourself against an accusation is not the same as debasing the person who is making it but that's splitting hairs. To deny the assault happened is implicitly to call Carol a liar, thus implicitly to defame her character. With such over-the-top damages, this case looks to the wrong half of the electorate, like one more attempt to hamper Trump's presidential bid. 
judges and juries in any of these court cases can't weigh the particulars without also being keenly aware that the verdict could affect who's the next president. It's doubtful that Donald J. Trump can get a genuinely fair trial anywhere in the country. That was Lionel Shriver. And now, Angus Colwell. Gen Z doesn't look like it wants to fight for Britain. But last week, General Sir Patrick Sanders, the chief of the general staff, said we might have to. He suggested that people my age should be prepared to join a civilian army in case we go to war with Russia. But could we handle being cut off from our phones and friends? Do we have the fellow feeling necessary to defend our country? What if we won't submit to authority? There are any number of reasons why my generation might reasonably not want to enlist. Accommodation will be uncomfortable, and the food will be grim, according to army discussion forums. The application process will take 18 months, and at the end, it's just a 50-60% to acceptance rate. Then if you do serve, the future of war looks bleak. One in three soldiers fighting in the Russia-Ukraine war has died or been injured. An academic who is also a reservist tells me, AI and drones mean everything can be seen all at once, so the next conflict could be medieval in nature, like hand-to-hand trench warfare in urban environments. Your fate is also in the hands of politicians, who in the past two decades have given us soul-destroying and often counterproductive wars in Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria. The main objection to war among Gen Z, however, is simple. I love not dying, says Harry, a university student. Another adds, yes, I'd be called a coward if I didn't fight, but what use is it being a hero if you're dead? Giving your life for your country is no longer a given. Is wokeness to blame? One senior defence source reckons so. It is making all this harder, they say. The army is a bit rough, you get shouted at, and few young people want that. Nigel Farage agrees. He told me that we have poisoned the minds of our younger generation with constant anti-British messages. No wonder no one wants to serve. Quite a few Gen Zers I spoke to said they wouldn't fight for our current political class. One friend went so far as to say, I'd rather die fighting our own government. Another added that she couldn't fight for the people who are currently representing our country. This is a big issue, according to one MP, who said, when you look at the mess that is modern politicians... Why on earth should people want to put their life on the line for the likes of us? Those of us who are politicians should respect what we are asking them to do. But it could be that Gen Z has the skills that the army desperately needs. We spent years gains maxing at Pure Gym. We know the protein content of a chicken breast to the milligram. We spent more than a decade training via first-person shooter games. And we've seen so much of Gaza on TikTok that we can't be shocked anymore. Some of us do actually believe that this country is still worth fighting for. Alex, who is studying at Durham, thinks we have to be ready to defend our principles. If you believe in the values that we are supposed to hold dear, he said, democracy, freedom of speech, then I think you have an obligation to defend that. You can't enjoy those privileges for your whole life, and then as soon as you're asked to defend them, you say no, because you don't agree with the current government. Gen Z Tom says he would rather die on his feet than live on his knees and thinks his contemporaries are too naive about our enemies. Charles, who served in the RAF's University Air Squadron, said he was driven by a low-level sense of duty, maybe even generational guilt. Others have fought to preserve my current way of life, he said. I should be prepared to do the same for future generations. Simon, who has been an officer in the RAF for three and a half years, says serving is a way to influence and respond to global events. But he admits that everyone's idea of duty is different. 
He said, Others quite legitimately may view themselves as having a duty not to risk their life when their friends and family want them alive. For some, duty doesn't even come into it. The army is the end in itself. Lucy, who's finishing her degree at Bristol and thinking about applying, says that she couldn't be less patriotic. Yet she's interested in joining the army because she has no idea what she wants to do after university, and it's a commendable thing to do. Plus, they're giving the impression that they'll take anyone. But should Lucy start scrolling through army subreddits and discussion forums, she might find herself less keen. For my generation of service men and women, the work is often no fun anymore. An increasingly corporate culture has made serving more like any other job. Would you risk your life for Shell or BT? says one reservist. Yet, as a former general told me, if there's a good war on, recruiting is rarely a problem. Perhaps the reason so few Gen Zers say they want to fight in a war is because life in the army sounds boring. In barracks across the land, soldiers will be tidying their rooms, staring at the ceiling, and preparing for another parade. They probably wouldn't mind a scrap. That was Angus Colwell, and now Matthew Paris. If I'd known where it would take me, I might never have started. This need not be an expression of regret. There are journeys where the final destination is best hidden from the traveller due to the psychological difficulty he may have in embracing the future until he's nearly there. This column will move on to assisted dying, but I start with a look back at the fight for equal rights for same-sex couples. I played a minor part in this. Ever since the 1950s, brave souls, at first just a few, fought for the repeal of 19th century laws criminalising male homosexual behaviour. They were joined by others, finally even politicians. In 1967, Roy Jenkins's Sexual Offences Bill passed Parliament, decriminalising private homosexual acts between men aged 21 and over. This remains the most important step in British gay history. John Major's reduction to 18 of the age of consent, Tony Blair's further reduction to 16, his civil partnerships legislation, and finally David Cameron's Marriage Same-Sex Couples Act, were all not only legislatively consequential upon it, but a product of the cultural momentum Roy Jenkins set in motion. Margaret Thatcher was among those voting for the Labour Bill. I've spoken to our late Prime Minister about these matters. Mrs Thatcher, as she was, typified in her approach the attitude, then considered modern, that won the argument. Thatcher's consoling hand on my wrist after we spoke in 1986 will be always in my memory. There, she said, that must have been very difficult for you. Her, for a 1950s woman, liberal view was that homosexuality was a personal misfortune, but not a matter for the police. We gays couldn't help it. If we kept this behaviour to ourselves, we shouldn't be persecuted. Gay men may now recoil in horror from such an attitude, but make no mistake, this was the approach that won the argument for the first big step that broke the taboo. This was the only pitch that worked on the doorstep. Our opponents argued that it was a slippery slope, that our campaign would lead to demands for total equality of esteem, that homosexuality would burst out all over the place. 
and prove contagious, even popular, and spread as a lifestyle choice. Privately, I rather agreed with them, but our campaign ducked such a scenario. All we wanted, we argued, was to be left alone. We played down the idea of noisily assertive gay pride, knowing it would hinder, not help, our campaign. In the event, what was to moral reactionaries a dystopian future has come to pass. The sky has not fallen in, and few, even among reactionaries, would go back now to 1950s laws and attitudes. Should I then have been bolder, embraced the destination rather than what I suspected to be only the first leg of a more ambitious journey? Honesty gives one answer to that question, tactical wisdom another. I'm old now, wearying of tactics, so on assisted dying I'll go for honesty. Those of us who believe that the terminally ill for whom life has become unbearable should have the right to command its end face, naturally, strong opposition. Much of it comes from religious people who often hide their personal investment in their faith and attach themselves instead to secular and medical claims, aware that God does not these days clinch a public debate. Perhaps the most formidable secular argument they attach themselves to, and we should acknowledge it, runs as follows. Once they say, the idea becomes normalised that for those for whom the weight of suffering has become too heavy should be able to end it, there will follow an increase in pressure on the terminally ill to lift the burden that looking after them places on caring relatives. Nobody, replies the campaign for assisted dying, would be so cruel as to urge a sick elderly loved one to consider suicide. Ah, maybe not, replies the opposition, but even if nothing is said, even if the caring companions would not in fact want their loved one to do any such thing, the loved one will think it. How often do we hear people say they don't want to be a burden on others? Once our national culture openly condones such an act, the terminally ill may put pressure on themselves to do the deed. Moral pressure is a thing that may be felt, even if it is not applied by others. I'm afraid to say that I think this is probably right. I sweep aside with impatience the argument that greedy relatives will trick the infirm into thinking it's all over, that carers will insinuate thoughts of suicide into the minds of confused elderly patients. Very few are so horrid. With equal impatience do I hear claimed reports of miraculous partial recoveries at death's very door. One or two, no doubt, but weighed against the misery of the 99% whose terminal diagnosis turns out to be accurate, a few Lazaruses should not tip the balance. But as to adding the pressure upon the terminally ill to lift the burden they're placing on others, well, let me bite the bullet. In time, I think that the spread and acceptance of assisted dying may indeed do that. And let me bite deeper into the bullet. I think this would be a good thing. With advances in medical science, humans will get older and older, spending longer and longer as invalids and with more and more of the last years of their lives in a condition that brings little pleasure 
and increasing pain. The option to foreshorten this will have to be more easily available and social mores will change to accommodate it. That includes the responsibilities the terminally ill feel towards those who must support them. We do feel these responsibilities now. We always have. It is natural. We are right to acknowledge their weight. To act upon these feelings will eventually be normalised in popular morality. That is where this legislative journey ends, and that is where it should. That was Matthew Paris, and now Toby Young. By the time you read this, my son Ludo will be in South America, where he's gone for what remains of his gap year. He deferred his university place and has been working in a pub since he left school, trying to earn enough money to go travelling. I made the mistake of telling him I'd match whatever he managed to save, imagining he'd struggled to put aside more than £500. Turns out the little bugger saved more than 5000 Still, he's going to need that £10,000 to pay for his expenses. He's spending the first four months in Brazil and doesn't speak a word of Portuguese, so will struggle to get a part-time job, even in a bar. His girlfriend is joining him in four months, and they're planning to embark on a South American tour, beginning with Peru. For reasons I find hard to explain, I feel more anxious about Ludo going away than I did about my daughter Sasha, who spent her gap year in Mexico. Unlike Ludo, who's gone with his best friend, she went on her own, and, on the face of it, teenage girls are more vulnerable than teenage boys. That's not true when it comes to murder. Roughly 80% of victims are men, but it's true of being kidnapped, where the ratio is reversed. Yet I'm more worried about Ludo being abducted than I was about Sasha, and I've gone through some proof-of-life questions with him. Favourite chicken takeaway, favourite Marvel superheroes, etc. If I do get a ransom demand, he's forbidden me to fly out and lead the negotiations since he's worried the kidnappers will decide that killing him is preferable to arguing with me. I suppose I should be pleased that he's adventurous enough to go on this trip. I raise my children not to be snowflakes, encouraging them to jump off cliffs into the sea, cycle to school from an early age, embark on long journeys unaccompanied by their parents, etc., As a general principle, I think this is sensible, and it's turned out well so far. Ludo, in particular, is a bold fellow, unafraid to take risks. But the downside is, if he gets into trouble on his travels, Caroline will blame my free-range parenting. Sasha speaks Spanish, so in Mexico she could talk her way out of a tight spot, which she frequently did. Ludo will have to rely on facial expressions and hand gestures, which I know from experience can be misunderstood in foreign climes. My nervousness may also be based on my own experiences of travelling as a young man. At the age of 17, after failing all my O-levels on account of smoking too much dope, I was packed off to live on a kibbutz by my father, who thought a spell of wholesome communal living would do me good. It turned out to be next to the Lebanese border, and was heavily shelled on the first night, prompting me to depart the following day. I ended up at another kibbutz, but was thrown out after a month for making eyes at the daughter of one of the founders. I decided to make my way to Egypt, and converted what money I had left into the local currency, not realising it was virtually worthless. That meant 
that when I got back from my trip to Luxor, I was unable to buy a plane ticket to London. I was then robbed at gunpoint by a policeman, leaving me virtually penniless. I went to the British Embassy and asked a friendly official if there was any chance of being deported. He advised against it. It's not the sort of thing you want on your record. He suggested that I ask my parents to wire me the money for a plane ticket. I decided to try that, but in those days you had to go to a post office to make an international call and the waiting list was seven days. In the meantime, I got a job working for a shady character at the Cairo bus station who gave me a small commission every time I managed to persuade some unsuspecting tourist to take a room at his brother-in-law's hotel, which made the half-built affair in Carry On Abroad look like the Taj Mahal. I was allowed to sleep on a mattress in one of the corridors, which saved me having to rough it, but didn't do much for my personal hygiene. The showers were reserved for paying guests. Then my fortunes changed. One of the pigeons I was tasked with ensnaring at the bus station turned out to be an evangelical Christian, and when I told him my hard luck story, he marched me into a bucket shop and used a couple of traveller's checks to buy me a plane ticket. Later that day, I was back in Blighty, having had what I considered a lucky escape. I subsequently tracked down my good Samaritan, repaid him in full, and told him he might have saved my life. I just pray Ludo is more sensible than I was. That was Toby Young, and finally, Harry Mount. Over the heather the wet wind blows, I've lice in my tunic and a cold in my nose. The rain comes pattering out of the sky, I'm a wall soldier, I don't know why. The mist creeps over the hard grey stone, my girl's in Tungria, I sleep alone. W.H. Auden was right. Life for a Roman legionary on Hadrian's Wall was bloody miserable. The Vindelanda letters sent to and from legionaries living near the wall, on show in a new British Museum exhibition, chime with Auden's lines in Roman Wall Blues. The Romans hated the English weather. In one letter found at Vindelanda Fort near Hexham, Northumberland, a legionary hears about some prized woollen underpants. The letter from Gaul to the freezing legionary tells him about the care package he's getting. Paria udunum absatua solearum duo et subligorium duo. Socks, two pairs of sandals and two pairs of underpants. Other objects in the British Museum show confirm the Romans' grim intention in Britannia, conquest and control. You'll see a sword from Pevensey, greaves and a scutum or shield from Hadrian's Wall, and a scabbard, tent peg, and goatskin tent from Vindelanda. Most beautiful is the Crosby Garrett helmet from Cumbria. The Phrygian cap style with an attached griffin is associated with Asia Minor, showing how far-flung the legionaries' influences were. The fort at Ribchester, Lancashire, housed troopers from Sarmatia, now southern Russia, former enemies turned employees of Rome. With all this fighting life in the frozen north, it's no wonder that of the 40,000 troops the Emperor Claudius brought to Britannia in 43 AD, only half lived to retirement age. Still, though, there were moments of calm and affection in the storm. In the exhibition is a 2nd century tombstone from Chester, 
showing a loving couple, Aurelius Nepos, a centurion of Legio XX, and his wife. The inscription says he died at 50, and that his devoted wife set up the stone. The Romans did at least have time to pamper themselves here. The exhibition includes a nifty device that combines tweezers, an ear scoop, and nail cleaners. From Vindelanda there comes a handy louse comb. Romans were punctilious about hygiene. At Bearsden, Glasgow, on the Antonine Walls, legionaries sat on a communal loo for nine people, a multi-sitter. Afterwards, they cleaned themselves with sponges on sticks, sanitised in a bucket of diluted vinegar. The Bearsden diet was healthier than the modern Glaswegian one. Barley, wheat, possibly for pasta, beans, figs, hazelnuts for raspberries, Brambles, strawberries, dill, coriander, celery and radishes. At the Caerleon Fort in Wales, archaeologists found amphorae for fine wine. The Romans didn't care for the local Pictish food, roe deer and venison, along with calam and caversa, that's pork scratchings and beer. Nothing changes. The legionaries' baths were pretty grand, and there were even lockers at Chester's Fort on Hadrian's Wall. At Vindelanda, clogs have been dug up with thick wooden soles to protect legionaries from scalding their feet on the baths under floor heating. Roman women and children used the baths. Hairpins and milk teeth have been found in the drains. There was time for games, too. At Vindelanda, they discovered a board and pieces for playing Ludus Latrincolorum, a kind of draughts, and there were luxury goods. A Vindelanda shopping list includes scarlet, green and purple curtains, necklaces and headbands. Like modern Italians, Romans were obsessed with their health. A Vindelanda tablet reveals a discussion about different medicines between Lepidina, wife of Flavius Cerealius, prefect of the ninth cohort of Batavians, and a lower status woman, Paterna. Roman medicine was pretty good. They could even treat disemboweling as long as the intestines were intact. At Biggleswade, archaeologists found an optician's prescription for eye drops and poppy salve for dim eyesight. The Romans brought doctors with them. At Hadrian's Wall, there's a second-century tombstone to Anicius Ingenuus, Medicus Ordinarius, a doctor of the first cohort of Tungrians. Tungria, which Auden refers to in his poem, was the Belgic part of Gaul. Gladiators did not have such good medical attention. Among the 80 skeletons buried in York's Gladiator Cemetery, there's one with a large bite mark, courtesy of a bear, tiger, or lion. Some had sword injuries, healed and unhealed. Others had hammer blows to the head. Many had been decapitated. But still, a thin, humane thread ran through Roman life. In a Vindelander letter, also in the British Museum expedition, Claudia Severa wrote to her sister Lepidina, the commander's wife. Claudia's writing is the earliest in British history known to be by a woman. She writes, Oh, how much I want you at my birthday party. You'll make the day so much more fun. I do so hope you can make it. She signs off, Wale soro anima mea carissima. Goodbye, sister, my dearest soul. That was Harry Mount, and that's it for this week's episode of Spectator Out Loud. Thank you for listening, and do join us again next week. <laughs>